Hi, everyone. Eric here. Two very quick notes before we get to this week's episode with Pippa Morgan in Shanghai. Unfortunately, there was a little bit of static on her line. It's not too much, but it's there, and you'll probably notice it, so I did want to apologize in advance for that. Also, I wanted to let you know that this week we launched our brand new subscription service, including a daily email newsletter that's really more like a daily intelligence briefing on all things related to China, Africa. It's just chock full of information, and we're very, very proud of how it's coming out. We also have our brand new China, Africa Experts Network that's taking shape with dozens of experts and professionals, analysts, artists, activists who are all together on this uh, this professional network and this expert network for you to connect with them directly. And of course, we have lots of exclusive analysis. Many from you are listeners who are submitting uh, essays and Q&As to us, and we're just so grateful for that. All of that is at ChinaAfricaProject.com. And we'd be so grateful for you to support this kind of independent journalism. Just head over to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much. Now on to the show. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about the link between Chinese aid and investment. Now, this normally in other countries' context is actually a pretty simple thing. I mean, you would never confuse, for example, the Americans, uh, what USAID does with investment because the U.S. government doesn't do investment. But in China, the lines are very, very murky. So let me back up a little bit and set up our conversation uh, going back to March, I think it was, of 2018, when the Chinese government announced the debut of the China International Development Cooperation Agency, also known as SIDCA. Now, up until last year, China did not have a formal aid agency. And this is where those lines between aid and investment start to get blurry, because up until last year, and even to some extent today, because SIDCA isn't 100% formed yet, um, MOFCOM, the Ministry of Commerce, ran most of China's aid programs. And a lot of aid gets mixed together with concessional loans, with state-owned enterprise, with Exim Bank types of things. And it's, it is really a complex mix, and we're going to sort through this. What makes this interesting for us is because when we look at Chinese aid and the distribution of assistance funds, uh, it comes down to Africa gets the lion's share of it. And I'm looking at some data that is a little bit old, and we're going to get some clarity today, hopefully from our guest, if this is still accurate. But according to the 2014 white paper on aid published by the Chinese government, 51.8% uh, of all Chinese aid went to Africa. That is significantly more than the number two recipient, which was Asia, that only got 30.5%, and uh, Oceania at 4.2%, Latin America and the Caribbean only 8.4%. So really, Africa has a disproportionate role in China's aid 
outlook and its policies. And at the same time, this role between aid and other investment financial tools, Cobus, is very, very confusing. It is confusing also because China doesn't use, doesn't necessarily follow, uh, you know, the, the standards that have been set by Western countries for, for giving aid. Um, and there's also, it, it gets even more confused because there are state-owned enterprises involved in, you know, in, in as contractors, there are Chinese state banks involved. So it becomes, you know, really important to try and kind of untangle what exactly the difference is between aid and investment. So when we talk about aid and investment, oftentimes people think that uh, the two are conflated with one another. And also people make a mistake because while China is relatively new to the investment scene in Africa, and that's really something that only came about really since the early 2000s with the Go Global policy, China is actually not new at all in the aid space. And that even goes back to the Mao Zedong era in the 50s and has been giving aid since uh, to Africa really since the mid-50s when uh, China's long historical relationship date back to countries like Tanzania and Zambia. And even when we saw the, the passing of Robert Mugabe, some of the memorials, you know, he they've been supporting him since his anti-colonial struggle days. So that was all considered part of aid. So this came across our radar when we saw a really interesting paper that crossed in September 2019, written by uh, Yu Zheng and Pippa Morgan, tracing the legacy China's historical aid and contemporary investment in Africa. It's a little bit on the academic side, but it's very, very interesting. And we're so happy to be able to have Pippa Morgan, who we've known for a very, very long time in the China-Africa space. Uh, and this is the first time on the show. Pippa joins us from the campus of New York University in Shanghai, where she's a Global Perspectives on Society fellow and a really well-known researcher on Chinese aid and overseas investment. She just recently completed her PhD at Fudan University, just across town in Shanghai, on Chinese aid and Sitka. Pippa, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be on the show. Well, it's fantastic to have you and to explain this, this difference between aid and investment. Now, that does seem like a silly distinction to make with most countries, but tell us a little bit why it's so confusing in China. Sure. So this is a, a really, really important question, because I think sometimes when we're talking about Chinese economic engagement in Africa, there's a tendency to confuse aid and investment. And they are related with each other, but they are slightly different things. So when we're talking about aid, we're talking about finance that's going from the Chinese government to an African government with some kind of concessional element or it's a grant and it's with some, got some kind of developmental or political aims. Whereas when we're talking about investment, we're talking about foreign direct investment or the Chinese use the term overseas direct investment. And this is really has a commercial motive and is usually done by companies with the intention of making a profit or at least with the view to making a profit at some point in that country in future. And this can be really confusing in the Chinese context because although these are different concepts, in the Chinese case, they are interlinked, as you said in the introduction. And one of the things that we do in the paper that you mentioned, Tracing the Legacy, is we uncover this historical link between China's aid program, which, as you said, goes back decades and decades, and in certain countries like Tanzania, like Zambia, like Ghana, um, and the behavior of Chinese contemporary commercial investors. So to try to put that in non-academic language, um, what I'm saying is basically that Chinese businesses today, when they're deciding where to invest in Africa, are still influenced by this long, long history of aid giving in certain countries. 
So if I can ask you a very dumb question, um, if if one looks at the at the standard, you know, kind of almost generic Chinese project in Africa, say they're building a port, it's being funded uh, by something like the Exim Bank. It's being constructed by a Chinese state-owned company, uh, but at the same time, you know, some of it might, you know, kind of might be in the form of, say, a concessional loan. Um, does that count as aid or investment or both? Um, so it could be either or both <laughs> to, uh, to give a possibly unhelpful answer. Um, so if there's a concessional loan involved, so China counts its concessional loans within its foreign aid. Um, so we would say there is some aid there, but it could also be um, associated with commercial investment. So it could be intended to bring commercial investment or there could be also a company involved in the financing. Um, at the same time, in addition to aid and investment, there's also another um, Chinese activity in Africa that's very important, which is contracting. So um, Chinese companies are very, very important contractors for construction projects like ports, like railways, like roads, buildings in Africa. And that could be funded either by the Chinese government. The Chinese government finance could be concessional, so aid, or it could be non-concessional. We'd call that official finance. But it could also be funded by someone like the World Bank or by the recipient government who have chosen in turn to use a Chinese contractor. So when we say China is building a port, it's actually really difficult without knowing the very, very specific details of the project to work out which category it fits into. I want to kind of go back to the early phases of Chinese aid, maybe not to the 50s or 60s, but let's go back to the late 90s mm -hmm. and the going out period. Sure. And this is when I started to first look at this. And one of the I was one of my former professors in Beijing, I, I did a course at, at Beijing University when I was a graduate student at Hong Kong University. And he said to me, he explained to me, he said that the Chinese, when they do foreign aid, do not want to repeat the mistakes of the West, that the West put forward billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars into places like Africa and yet did not see the commensurate improvement in quality of life. And if you matched you, you, oh, the amount of money spent with the improvement, and the Chinese said, listen, we don't want to do it that way. Our own development path went very differently. We did not depend mm -hmm. on aid. And this is part of the, the, the Chinese you know, development lore. They tell themselves these fantasies a little bit. There was a lot of aid that came from <laughs> Japan and other countries, including the World Bank in China. But, you know, people like to tell themselves these fun stories. Nonetheless, the Chinese believe that they did it through Deng Xiaoping's opening up in 1992, the, the special economic zones, the reform of the agricultural sector, and it was not an aid-driven development path, which there is some legitimacy to that case. And they wanted to bring that into their aid programs when they go to places like Africa. So by just giving money, they create dependencies, and they said, we want to avoid that. Is that one of the reasons then that the Chinese said, okay, we're going to then provide you with infrastructure, concessional loans, all these other tools that don't create the same types of aid dependencies that haven't worked very well necessarily for OECD countries, and they went a different path. Talk to us a little bit about the origins of how we got to the place where China's aid is so different, unrecognizable to that of traditional donors in Japan, the US, and Europe. Sure, absolutely. That's a that's a really important issue. So you're absolutely right that China conceives of 
the very idea or the concept or the purpose of aid in a very different way from the West. So in Western countries, I'm from the UK, for example, we, te- we think of aid as going from the donor to the recipient and being intended to benefit only the recipient. Whereas China sees aid as something that is, it should be win-win. So China should also benefit. And that it's interesting that you mentioned the Japan case, because actually China was a very large recipient of Japanese development aid. And when China was first starting to develop in the 80s and 90s. And at that time, Japan's approach to aid within China was actually quite similar to the Chinese approach to aid in Africa today. So China kind of looks at it and thinks, okay, well, we benefited from that. And we can take that model now and apply it in our development assistance in other developing regions. And that gives rise to these key differences that you mentioned between China and the conventional um, development assistance committee. So that's the kind of club of conventional donors. Um, this gives rise to these very large differences between um, China and the development assistance committee approaches to aid. So, for example, um, development assistance committee aid, so UK aid or US aid or so on, or Japan now, um, it's usually not tied to the use of a donor country contractor. So when the UK wants to give an aid project to an African country, they don't require that the project is implemented by a UK company because the approach is, well, the UK should not necessarily get any, any benefit from this. China, on the other hand, most Chinese aid is tied to the use of Chinese companies because from a Chinese perspective, it should be a kind of process of mutual gain. So the recipient receives a road or a railway or a hospital and the Chinese company receives an opportunity for a contract through which they can make money. I've seen a lot of criticism coming from Western, you know, uh, Western scholars and um, and commentators on the fact that China isn't playing according to this uh, development assistance committee set of rules. Um, do, how how does that change Chinese mm-hmm. aid, you know, compared to Western aid? Like how like are, are the two fundamentally different because of these different rules, uh, you know, kind of being followed and not followed? Um, so it changes it. Um in a couple of ways, which you could judge positively or negatively. So um, one is related to political conditionality. So, for example, um, when the UK or the US gives um, wants to give an aid project, they will quite often attach conditions related to things like human rights. Um, and the, the intention is to encourage the recipient countries to um, improve in those areas. Whereas China, on the other hand, is, has a very, very different approach where they're just kind of like, no, we are not going near the politics of the recipient country. That's their business. And um, from the recipient country's perspective, I mean, this could be a good thing or a bad thing, um, depending on where you're sitting. Um, but it, it does point to a very key difference between Chinese um, and Western aid. Um, another key difference between uh, the typical development assistance committee approach and the Chinese approach is that um, most Western donors tend to prefer to uh, focus on social sectors. So by that, I mean things like healthcare, like education, capacity building, and so on and so forth. Whereas the Chinese approach, which very much links back to China's own development model and also to the um, aid that Japan gave to China, um, 
in the 1980s and 1990s, the Chinese approach is very much to focus on more economically productive sectors. Um, So things like building uh, power stations or transport infrastructure. And personally, I think actually that points to a complementarity between Chinese and um, conventional approaches to aid. So all of these things are needed. You know, educational support is needed. Healthcare support is needed. But at the same time, these hard infrastructure are also necessary. So I think that um, when we... We spend a lot of time, I think, talking about critiques and each side critiquing the other. But actually, there's quite a lot of complementarity there. There may be complementarity, but it also isn't that the words of an idealistic academic in a in an ivory tower, because you look at, and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but but you look at the reality on the ground in places like East Africa, where the United States and European countries uh, have taken great offense at some of the LGBTQ policies that have been implemented and have withdrawn some of their aid as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, people like uh, Museveni in Uganda have made it very clear that he doesn't want the West messing in his, uh, you know, putting conditionalities on. So they may be complementarity, they may be complementary to one another, mm-hmm. but given the politics on the ground and the now the choice that some African leaders have, maybe those who are less democratic or autocratic, uh, they like to have China as an option there to say, you know what, we can turn to China. Now, they're not turning to China in the same way because clearly the United States, for example, donates more aid money to Africa than any other country, as far as I know, for now. Uh, the You know, if the Trump administration has their way, they're going to cut the aid budget by about a third. Uh, that's their proposal. So far, Congress has resisted that. But I just wonder about whether or not it's really practical on the ground to think about that in complementary ways. I can't say that word today very well. But you know what I mean in that because in the reality is that they're playing each other off one another, particularly in African politics. So you're absolutely right that there is a fundamental contradiction between um, the Western approach that um, aid should not be used to support regimes with um, very, very, very questionable human rights policies and China's approach of staying hands off. But that doesn't mean that actually practically on the ground, these cooperations don't actually happen. So, um, for example, China and the UK, um, when I was doing my fieldwork for my PhD dissertation, I was actually quite surprised. I was not doing any research on China-UK cooperation, but when I was on the ground, I found um, quite a bit of evidence of this. So, for example, if I take something like the Partnership for Investment and Growth in Africa, so this is a a China-UK trilateral cooperation with a group of um, African countries. I can't remember exactly which ones now, but Zambia is one of them. And the idea is to use the UK's um, money and expertise to bring Chinese companies to identify investment opportunities in Zambia. So although there are these fundamentally, absolutely um, different approaches to uh, the very idea of what aid should do, that doesn't mean that actually on the ground, in the grassroots, these corporations can't arise. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. 
um, how does the the setting up of a, of a state aid agency in, in in China how does that change the situation? Does that mean that China is essentially starting to move more in the direction of of Western donors? That's a really good question. Um, and to answer it, it's worth actually giving a little bit of background about um, why the history of this and why this agency was set up. So as was mentioned in the introduction, China's aid has uh, conventionally been delivered um, or uh managed by the Ministry of Commerce primarily. However, the Ministry of Commerce also had to work together with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and with the Ministry of Finance and with the various other potential ministries involved like agriculture or health or um, whatever energy, depending on the nature of the project. And so bringing together all these different bureaucratic interests was, you can probably imagine, actually quite difficult and resulted in some uh, coordination issues. And so um, the way the, the creation of the, the SIDCO was interpreted, certainly by um, those of us who study Chinese aid, is that it was an attempt to centralize and streamline and try to make China's aid program um, a little bit more uh, strategic and a little bit more coordinated. Having said that, um, the agency is incredibly new and we haven't really seen any empirical evidence of any major changes in China's approach to aid since the creation of that agency. Um, that's not to say they won't happen in the future, but it's a little bit too, too early to tell. But it is a signal of... Um, China, at least bureaucratically, so in terms of the, the structure, um, the way that it's organized, moving a little bit more towards a conventional model of aid. So, for example, um, to use again the UK or the US, um, both have uh, centralized ministries that are in charge of foreign aid strategy and policy and implementation. Um, China has not had that up to this point. So it is a potential sign of China um, starting to uh, look a little bit potentially more like those conventional donors. Um, however, one area in which it has not yet um, which people were a little bit um, hopeful, I guess, when the creation of the, the SIDCO was announced, was that we might start to see a little bit more um, comprehensive and detailed information about China's aid program. Um, because China doesn't currently release very much detail about the project. So if you want to scrutinize, for example, um, any OECD, OECD donor's aid, you can literally go on the internet and you can find all the data about all these projects. Um, and that allows you to kind of try to, or allows academics like us to try to figure out whether or not they're working. Whereas China doesn't do that. And we kind of hope that the SIDCO the might lead to a little bit more information, but thus far it hasn't um, led to as much as we would like to see. Yeah, the word that I hear from, from, from sources in Beijing is that SIDCO is still really a stepchild caught in between two very powerful parents, that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Commerce are two of China's most powerful ministries. And SITCA is the, the off-child, you know, the, the offspring of those, of those two ministries. And those two ministries ha don't necessarily have an incentive, according to just basic human bureaucratic behavior, to empower Sitka too much because that will then come into their turf and whatnot. So I think Sitka has a has needs time 
to figure its way through the bureaucratic politics in Beijing, which are complicated as in any major capital. When if a new agency came out of Washington or London or Brussels, it would be it would have it would need some time to find its way as well. So I, I, I get the sense that it just needs a little bit more time. I want to go back to what you talked about in terms of the win win concept. Uh, this is, of course, uh, an old cliche with the Chinese that they say they want to have mutual benefit. A lot of critics in Africa, though, will say, is it win-win for China and Africa, or is it win-win that China wins twice? That China gives the aid, and then China has its contractors, its banks, its people, everybody does all the work, and all gets, and they benefit entirely. I think that's in part an unfair criticism, because if you look at aid and Dambisa Moyo, uh, talked about this in her book, Dead Aid. Uh, there's been another number of other scholars who've talked about the inefficiencies of U.S. and European aid, you know, sending over, you know, John Deere tractors with no parts and no supplies and no way to, no way to maintain them in Africa is stupid, but it helps a very important constituency in the Midwest of the United States who's important for electoral politics. Same with grain and wheat that doesn't necessarily match with the needs of certain African recipients, but it plays into domestic American politics. Aid has always been about politics and about benefiting the the Americans. Now, it's interesting in the American, uh, under the Trump administration, they've made it abundantly clear, saying that aid must benefit American interest first. So in some ways, I think the Americans and the Chinese are actually saying the same thing, that it's got to be, it benefits them and it benefits us. But I guess going back to my discussions with my professor at Beida at Beijing University, One of the things that he said as part of our conversation on this topic that I'd like to get your feedback was that in the old days, they saw, the Chinese saw what was happening to aid money going into into countries that had very low levels of governance. 60, 70, 80 percent of the money was skimmed off the top into corruption. So the Chinese incentive was if we make the money go from one side of Chang'an Avenue in Beijing to the other side of Chang'an Avenue in Beijing, what we're doing is we're actually doing that with the intent of keeping the money out of Africa so it's not subject to corruption. This is their thinking. And we can deliver the services more effective, whether that's a road, an airport, a clinic, whatever it is. It gets built and 60, 50, 40%, however much the corruption is, it doesn't get whittled away. That was the ideal. I don't know if that's still true, but that was part of the logic that the Chinese had, or at least some stakeholders in the Chinese side had. Have you heard of that before? And is that still relevant in their thinking in terms of how to minimize the impact of corruption on Chinese aid and learning from what didn't work with the US, Europe, and Japan? Yes, absolutely. I think you're totally right about that. So um, the purpose of... Um, essentially ensuring the money flows from the Chinese government to the Chinese contractor is not only to get opportunities for the Chinese contractors, but is also to ensure um, or to reduce um, the potential for corruption. That's not to say that um, corruption can't or doesn't happen, but it is seen as a mechanism. Or doesn't happen on the Chinese side, by the way, too. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) It's not just, you know, there's corruption on all sides of this potentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's not to say it doesn't happen, but it is that that tying process is very much seen as a an attempt, a tool in, with which China can attempt to reduce this problem. Um, again, uh, another kind of somewhat dumb and, and very broad question: um, If you look at the future of of aid to Africa, like should should we be essentially be campaigning for the end of aid? 
um, you know, in a, should, should Africa be moving towards other forms of financing? Um, you know, and, and from there, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, drawing on some of the, the kind of critiques of aid from people like Dambi Samoyo, you know, kind of who have, you know, who, who said many times that, you know, despite the billions and billions of dollars of aid that have gone into Africa, it has actually had relatively little, little result. Um, so is, is the aid model itself obsolete or corrupt or, you know, is, or is there a way of doing aid in a kind of a better way where it actually will lead to, to real development? That is an incredibly um, important um, and very difficult question to answer. Um, so I think when you're thinking about does aid work, should we be campaigning for the end of aid? We have to look at whether or not there is evidence, empirical evidence, that aid actually leads to development in the recipient countries. And as an academic who um, reads the literature on this, who reads academic studies about on this topic, the evidence is really inconclusive. So unfortunately, I don't know whether or not we should be campaigning for the end of aid, because there are some studies that show, yeah, yeah, aid, aid can help. And there are others that show that it really it indicate that it just doesn't. Um, and I think it's this points to a broader question about um, the agency of the recipient countries. And I mean, the answer is aid works in some contexts when it's used well, and it doesn't when it's used for either f um, from the, the host to, to achieve host country political ends, um, sorry, donor country uh, political aims or recipient country political aims when it's used for um, kind of negative um, or nonsensical goals, then it doesn't work. So um, it's all about how can we um, ensure that it's used in a it's used correctly. But broader, um, another kind of related um, theme there is whether or not we decide or whether or not we agree that we should be campaigning for the end of aid. Um, the aid can't achieve um, the the goals by itself. So aid is by nature relatively smaller scale compared to other forms of financing like um, like commercial loans or investment because it's coming from donor countries who are giving their taxpayers money to other countries. And it is therefore... Um, so the amounts that we're talking about therefore necessarily tend to be quite small relative to other forms of financial flow. So we, whether or not... Um, whether or not aid works, we also need to um, help developing countries to attract commercial investments um, alongside. So for our last question of our discussion today, I want you to take out your crystal ball and I want you to kind of look into it and tell us where are we going to be next year at this time? And let's take a couple factors into account here, because next year at this time, probably your country will no longer be a part of the European Union. And if you read the, the white papers and they're in the forecast correctly, it looks like the UK is going to go into some form of economic chaos. Um, and DFID may be curtailed quite a bit in its spending, as British taxpayers say, we're going to spend our money at home and not to spend on aid in places like Africa. Certainly, if Donald Trump is reelected, um, the agenda for aid, he will be empowered much more than he did in his first term to cut aid, and Congress will be behind him more likely to do that. So the, the traditional commitment of aid uh, from the U.S. and Europe 
is is changing. At the last TCAD 7 summit in Yokohama, uh, Kobus, you were there. I, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about aid. There was a lot of talk about private sector engagement. Uh, and, and really, the conversation between Japan and Africa seems to be moving beyond aid as well. Then step up to China. China clearly is very proud of the fact that it has more uh, Blue Helmet UN peacekeepers who are engaged in humanitarian operations, which is, we didn't talk about the UN role in all of this, but that's very important. They're upping their commitment in peacekeeping and post-conflict stabilization and that form of assistance. And then we have Sitka, who will eventually, in the next year, hopefully, to some extent, get its sea legs and start doing something. And so you'll start to see more of a Chinese presence in the aid scene. So where, with all of that kind of in the pot, what kind of stew are we going to have next year at this time? I um, absolutely agree with you that um, from the more conventional donors, we're likely to see a reduction of aid and a certainly in the US case and possibly in the UK case as well, um, potentially a kind of withdrawal from the aid space um, to some extent. On the Chinese side, it's very difficult to say because um, China faces two conflicting pressures. So on the one side, China's economy is slowing down. China's aid to other developing countries is not particularly popular domestically in China, although it's very difficult to do um, research on this. Anecdotally, there's a lot of evidence that um, many Chinese citizens are not particularly happy about China giving aid to African countries. And those pressures and those critiques are only going to increase if China's own um, economy slows down. But on the other hand, China faces this huge kind of opportunity to move into a space that is potentially or move further into a space that is potentially being vacated by the conventional donors. Um, And the Chinese government presumably is going to want to seize that opportunity. The question is, given everything else that's going on in China, um, or is likely to be going on in China next year, um, whether or not they can actually seize the opportunity from uh, the US and other Western donors potentially retreating from that space. Pippa Morgan is at New York University's Shanghai campus, where she's a Global Perspectives on Society fellow researching Chinese aid and overseas investment. She completed her PhD at Fudan University in Chinese aid and then co-wrote a paper with Yu Zheng, who we hope to also have on the program sometime, uh, Tracing the Legacy, China's Historical Aid and Contemporary Investment in Africa. I would recommend for everybody to go and read it, but unfortunately, it is behind these very, very effective academic paywalls that makes it very difficult for people to uh, to get to, to actually read your stuff. Is that correct? You can't. This is this is locked, right? That is correct. Um, it's an unfortunate. I apologize. Um, it's an okay. unfortunate way. Um, that's the way academia works. I, I'm sorry. That is the way it works. <laughs> Add it to my list of grievances, Cobus, with academia. But. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Pippa, if people want to follow what what you're reading and writing, is there a way for them to stay in touch with you? Sure. So they can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Pippa underscore A underscore M. Um, You can also add me on LinkedIn. So if you just, my LinkedIn profile is open. So if you just search Pippa Morgan, P-I-P-P-A-M-O-R-G-A-N, you can also find me on LinkedIn. And Pippa was one of the very first members of the China Africa Experts Network on our brand new website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. We have this new thing. It's an experts network. You want to get in touch with the people we speak with on the podcast with Pippa. 
go to our website, click on the Expert Network, and there she is. You'll get a few free kind of pages to look at it, but then you're going to be asked to subscribe, and we are asking people to subscribe because this is really an amazing thing that we're doing uh, in the sense of the amount of work that goes into doing it and the journalism we're putting in and the voices that we're bringing to the table. And uh, But we do have this great expert network, and Pippa is part of it. Thank you so much for uh, for filling out a, uh, and joining the expert network. You're part of a great community of China-Africa experts in academia, activism, journalism, the arts. We're trying to get everybody together. If you would like to be in the network, just go to our website. There's an ad on the side of the expert network. You can click on that orange link there and submit a profile, and then I'll take a look at it. And uh, if it makes sense for you to be a part of it, we want to keep it so it's really relevant so that people like Pippa can connect with other people like you who listen to this podcast, uh, that would be great. So Pippa, thank you so much for, for doing that. We really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And thank you for joining us today. We uh, were really just so honored that you finally were able to make it on, and we're not going to wait years and years and years before you come back again. Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. Kobus, the most salient point here in this whole discussion for me is what she said at the end, and when Pippa talked about the unpopularity of Chinese uh, aid in China. And that is something that I've seen myself talking to just you know scholars and even the guy on the street. Aid in China is no more popular than it is in the United States. And people in the U.S. really do not support foreign aid that much. I mean, you know, politically, we love it as a talking point. But you ask the guy on the street, and there's this real sense that we should take care of our people at home first rather than take care of other people. Now, in China, the issue is the fact that there are still between 50, 75 million, depends how you count it, of people who are as poor or poorer than anybody in Africa. The level of chronic poverty in China, particularly in some of the interior provinces, uh, cannot be overstated. And it's something that people lose sight of when they see pictures of Shanghai, Beijing, Tianjin, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, all these beautiful cities on the East Coast. But in the hinterland, in the interior provinces, uh, it's still very, very rough. Or in the northern places like Gansu, where the desert from the Gobi Desert's coming down, life is very, very rough. So when they hear news of aid programs in Africa of new buses going into Eastern Europe, people get really, really angry because they say, we have real problems at home. And I think, I think Pippa's point on that is very, very important that there's not the same type of political currency of aid in China that there might be in places like the UK or elsewhere where they really market it as part of our benevolence and part of our morality as a country to help others. That doesn't play very well in China. Yeah, no, I mean, that that makes sense. You know, that that is part of, of the reality of China still being a developing country in lots of ways. Um, and of course, you know, China being both a historical recipient of aid and a current donor, you know, that, that itself plays into a wider story that the Chinese government is eager to tell of the, of the history of Chinese development, one that you also see being told in places like South Korea. Um, you know, I, 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 to a certain extent, I think aid isn't necessarily that much more popular in Africa than, than outside of Africa, you know, because it ties Africa down in lots of ways and, and it tends to reinforce some of Africa's fundamental problems, as, as people like Dambi Samoyo have pointed out. So I don't think aid is particularly loved anywhere, you know, um, and I think a lot of Africans would bristle at the idea of, of 
aid essentially being a handout to the continent when they would quickly point out that, you know, things like agricultural subsidies and, and import uh, tariffs and, you know, kind of different kind of trade barriers and so on is also artificially keep Africa out of global markets, um, you know, and locked into an aid system, um, you know, and, and, and the kind of drumbeat of, of trade, not aid, is, is, is very strong in Africa too. So, you know, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's not loved anywhere, but like at the moment, it's this kind of weird feature of the landscape, which doesn't seem to be going away. Well, take a, I'd say keep an eye on uh, what's going on in the Ebola crisis in eastern Congo. The Chinese uh, are deploying more PLA uh, forces as part of UN contingency into that, uh, into that region. And the Chinese also played a very important role in the Ebola fight in West Africa back in 2014, 2015. Uh, and that is actually one of those areas where the U.S. and China can collaborate with each other, although highly unlikely that they actually will. Uh, it just doesn't make sense that the Chinese have a big anti-Ebola operation going right next to an American one, but maybe that's just the way it is and that's the way it's going to be. But nonetheless, I think that's going to be one area to watch, also the UN side of it all, because the United States uh, is does seem to be pulling back out of its uh, enthusiasm for engaging the United Nations, and China certainly is not. And we heard that again at the, re at the recent UN General Assembly meeting in New York, where China reaffirmed its commitment to multilateralism and to, uh, to UN engagement. So that might be one of the areas where they channel some of their aid efforts. And again, we got to keep our eye on what happens with Sitka, whether or not it will be a force, it's hard to tell. I mean, again, it's it's been an unimpressive start to date because we just haven't seen anything and the expectations have been very high. But so maybe we'll see something in the next year or so. Hard to, uh, you know, the Chinese don't move very fast in this space. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. Hey, everybody, just once again, a reminder, we now are sending out a daily China-Africa email newsletter. It's a subscriber feature. Uh, it's $149 a year. But boy, Cobus, you know, we're saving time with this thing. That's what we're trying to do with it, is let people kind of, we'll do the reading for you. We'll give you a cliff notes of all the key papers that are out there. And I guess for think tankers like you who have to read a lot every day, this might actually help. Yes, very, very useful. You know, the, the kind of rundown of, of these three were these three key recommendations came out of this piece of research. Invaluable. So that is something we would love to have you a part of it. Those of you listening to the podcast, particularly all the way here at the end of the show, are the hardcore China-Africa analysts and devotees. So you guys would probably love the, sh the, the, pod, the, uh, the newsletter uh, more than anything. I spend, I'm doing it myself. And then Cobus is checking it every day. Cobus is going to start writing uh, a lot more of it as, as we kind of get ramped up as well. So this is just Cobus and I putting this together. So if you like what you're hearing on the show, you're really going to like what we're doing with this email newsletter. Go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. You'll get in for a year and that will give you access as well to the website and the China Africa Experts Network and all the great stuff we're doing on the website as well. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast, which, by the way, will stay free forever. Don't worry about that. That's never going behind the paywall. Cobus uh, Knight will be back again next week with another edition. Thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.